Well, good morning, and thank you so much for having me here. And just before I start, I, I just want to say again, thank you so much for the way that you have loved and welcomed me and my family here. Um, we just could not have asked for a better situation to, to come into. And um, we are so thankful that um, y'all have allowed us to be a part of what God's doing here at City Church, and we're so excited for where City Church is headed. And um, yeah, as, as I was coming on board, I, I asked Jeff, like, what's something that our people really like? And he thought for about a second and said, City Church at the movies, they like that. And I said, okay. And then he proceeded to tell me about City Church at the movies. And we do these sermons based on some of these films that have been nominated. And I think, oh, that's cool. And I mean, really, like, I love that we love to do a series like City Church at the movies. But there is an interesting, like, dynamic to the whole thing. Because when, when I would tell someone this is what we do, or you start to look at the list of movies that get nominated for Best Picture, you start to think, like, oh, I... We talk about that at church? <laughs> we, we do a sermon on that? Okay. And, I mean, like, yeah, as someone who grew up in the church, like, I, those are not movies that we're supposed to talk about. And I don't even know if I'm allowed to watch the movies still. Like, you are allowed to watch one R-rated movie a year. It's The Passion of the Christ, and you're supposed to watch it a few days before Easter. And if you don't cry, you should pray for forgiveness afterwards because you just watched an R-rated movie, and you don't have a heart. Like, <laughs> That's maybe a little exaggerated, but probably not too far off from the world that some of us have grown up in. And, and we do wonder, like, when I put on three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, I did not bring my kids into the room, right? I made sure they were in bed before Hillary and I watched because it's not a kid-friendly movie. It's not the kind of thing that a church would normally say, let's talk about that. And so I wonder, like, it almost feels like as a good Christian, we're not, as a good Christian in quotes, we're not supposed to, to, to fill our minds with that. But I, I think there is maybe, like, something that the Apostle Paul would say to us. There's a story from his life. If anybody is deserving of the title of good Christian, it's him. And, and if you don't know, Paul is one of the most significant, if not the most significant person in the spread of the gospel in the early church, right? He made it his life's mission to take the news about Jesus everywhere he could where nobody had heard it before. And he was amazing and courageous and prolific and talented. And there's a story from his journey in Acts 17 that I think is super important for us to look at. And so if you got your Bibles, um, paper, electronic, We'll get it on the screen if you don't have either, but Acts 17 is where we'll be, and Acts is Luke's account of what happens after Jesus raise, raises from the dead and ascends into heaven, and so Luke tells the gospel account of Jesus' life, and then he writes Acts of the Apostles to tell us what happened in the early church, and a huge piece of it is dedicated to what Paul is doing all over the Mediterranean world. And when Paul would go to towns, he, he had, there was a pretty stereotypical pattern. He would show up at a place, he would go to the synagogue or the, the Jewish church that's in the area, and he would talk to any Jewish person or non-Jewish person by birth who worshiped Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he would point through the Old Testament scriptures, and he would show them 
This is all describing Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that God has given, and he wants everybody to be in relationship with him, and that's available to you. And and then everybody fell into two categories, either the people that said, yes, I want to hear more, let me follow Jesus, and then the people that wanted to kill Paul for what he had said. And after a particularly rough encounter with some of those second people I mentioned in, in Thessalonica, Paul is like still recovering, and he gets separated from his friends, and it says he has to go to Athens, and he says, I'll just wait here until you guys can catch up. And so at verse 16, that's where our story starts. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. All right, Paul's in Athens, and before we go too much further, let's just talk about Athens real quick. Some background on Athens. If you have slept through every history class you've ever taken, you still know that Athens is kind of a big deal. Right? If, if you are in the Western world today, if you're at a university and you are studying philosophy in any form, at some point you're going to go back to Athens because somebody that was from there or taught there or studied there has a significant contribution to how we think about the world. Right? That, that was, at one point, it was the height of human civilization. It was the most powerful city in the entire world. And then the Romans came, and it wasn't that anymore. And by the time Paul gets there, Athens is sort of this backwater town with a good port and a whole bunch of people that still really like to talk about ideas. And they'd sort of like devolved into this group of of elitists that would sit around, and this this might sound completely insane to you, but they would form a, a social network of people that they would then share ideas with each other. They would like put them out in the public forum and then they would wait for other people in this social network to like or comment on those ideas or follow them so that they could hear more of their ideas. I, right, like weirdly familiar, maybe, I don't know. They just thought it was a good idea back then. Um, they also were all over the spectrum on what they actually thought. Because they had this this deity system handed down from antiquity where they had all of these these gods that represented different things and explained and they're rooted in mythology. And then the Romans hijacked all of those and gave them new names. And and there were temples and altars and shrines all over this city to all of these different gods. It's literally a city built on idolatry. And, And nobody like really is on the same page in Paul's time of what we think about all this. Most people don't actually buy into all of these ancient gods. They're much more concerned with their ideology that they've ascribed to. And you have people all over the map on, on do we think there is a God, do we not? What do we think the God or gods are like? What's the purpose of life? How do we determine what is good? What is the right thing to do, what is noble, what is true. And, and they were all over the map, and you had this wide range of people all the way over here that are Epicureans and people all the way over here that are Stoics and a whole bunch of people in between. And, and nobody really says that anybody's wrong, but everybody thinks they're the only ones who are right. Again, I don't know if that sounds even remotely familiar to you, but yeah, 
Nobody's wrong, but I'm the only one that's right. That's the world that Paul finds in Athens. And let's be clear, this is not a Christian town. This is not a Christian culture. There are none. Right? They've got a small group of people that follow the God of Judaism. But this is not a Christian culture. This is a culture of idolatry. And so what happens when Paul finds himself in this culture? It says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they, talk him, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Right, so Paul is sharing with anybody he can because that's what Paul does. Right, and, and even if he has broken ribs and a busted face and, and a limp because of what has happened to him outside of a town close by, he's still trying to figure out how to tell people about Jesus. And so he's going through the marketplace and, and he does not like what he sees. Right, there's idolatry everywhere. Yet he still says, let me tell you about Jesus. And so to anybody that will listen, and actually people do start listening, enough so that people get together and they say, okay, you, we've heard lots of ideas. None of them sound like you. This, this Jesus thing that you were describing sounds very, very different. Why don't you tell us more about it? And so he's not being the annoying guy off in the corner. He's going person to person and saying, let me tell you, about a God who has changed everything. And it's so different from what they have heard in Athens that they say, we should all hear more about this. And so they say, let's go to the Areopagus, which is the biggest forum in town, overlooks the whole city, where, where you can then tell all of our people who like to sit around and talk and think about ideas what it is that you believe. And what happens next, I think, is, is not just important for Paul in this story. I think it's important for us. What do you do when you live in a non-Christian culture? A world that definitely does not embrace the same things that Jesus embraces. And you're given a chance to say what you believe. When somebody asks you, what do you think? How do you respond? Historically, as a church, we've responded in three different ways. The first one is we withdraw, right? We, we like to hide from culture. When we find ourselves in, in a world where we feel surrounded by things that do not embody God, let's, let's hide. Let's build up our defenses, put up our walls, form our own isolated communities so that we can be separate from everyone around us. We can keep the evil out. Second strategy that we often fall to is we wage war against the culture. And so let's gain political strength and power so that we can overtake all of those people who are wrong and we can make them do things the right way. 
The third option that we go to a lot is we just accept culture. We blend in. We don't want to make waves. We just want to go with the flow and say, yeah, everything's okay. The problem is, is that none of those allow us to keep the full gospel. Every one of those requires us giving up a piece of our mission from God. Right? If we hide, we're no longer salt salt for our earth. We no longer have anything to offer. We're just those weird people that do things all by ourselves and create our own music and movies and jewelry and books and and whatever other thing that we do that looks weird to the world. If we decide that we're going to fight the culture, then we just look like the people that are angry. And we get power, we're the ones who oppress others and, and make them do the thing that we know is right. And when we just accept, we no longer have anything to offer the world that it doesn't already have. Right, when we, just, when we just nod, everybody's left in the exact same situation that they were before. That breaks the heart of God. So is there a fourth way we could respond? Spoiler alert, yes. And Paul's gonna show us how we do it. So let's look. Paul stands up in a meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. We could talk a lot about what Paul just said. There are a few things that that stand out to me in this story that that I think we need to understand in having a different reaction to culture. First thing I notice is that Paul's not okay with idolatry, right? Verse 16, when he shows up in Athens, it says he's distressed by what he sees. He recognized this is not good. This is not what God wants. This is not what I want for these people. He's not okay with their, their reality, their culture. But he certainly doesn't hide from it. In fact, what we see is that, that Paul spends a whole bunch of time in it. And it says he carefully goes through the town, 
And I can just see him looking at all of these different things and his whole time is heartbreaking and him praying for the people that are, that are trapped in these lies yet trying to study it, trying to understand it. What, what are they trying to say here? What's the longing of their heart that's being expressed right here? What, what do they want out of life that makes them think that this is the answer? And because he's willing to study, because he's willing to understand the culture that's at work, he's able to find an altar to an unknown God. And that altar gives him a perfect door into their world. When he is in their world, he's not self-righteously telling everyone how much he has abstained from all of their idolatry. He's not building up walls to keep it all out. He's trying to understand it, to enter into it so that he might be able to enter into their hearts. The other thing he does is, is he speaks, right? Paul's not silent on the matter, right? And he starts with, with the one-on-one conversations. Anybody that will listen to him, he wants to tell them about this Jesus guy, And then at some point, those people say, would you come tell everybody about this? Because this is different. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they liked everything he said, or that they agreed with everything he said. But they did say it was different, it was worth hearing. And what I get from that, Paul's not out screaming in the marketplace. He's not raining down judgment. He's not speaking condemnation. He's saying, no, there's a different way to do this. There's a different reality that you don't know. And he's doing it in a way that's, that's actually attractive to people enough that they would want to hear more. And notice they invite him to their party. He doesn't invite himself to theirs. Right? He, he shares in his one-on-ones, and that gets him an audience with the bigger group. And he gets in front of that group, and he speaks. But when he speaks, he does it like a friend, right? He starts off his whole speech. He thinks these guys are wrong. He thinks that they are lost, that they have put their lives into things that are hopeless, and instead of treating them like idiots or evil enemies, he talks to them like they're friends. He says, people of Athens, Obviously, you guys are very religious people. I can see it everywhere. And I've spent time looking in your town. And, and, and he's, he's making them feel like he cares. And that seems like a common sense thing to do, but common sense is not so common. But if, if you want a relationship with someone to continue past an initial conversation, usually it's helpful to start that conversation, treating the other person like they're a friend and not like they're dumb or evil. And so he starts the conversation like a friend would start the conversation. He speaks with love and care and understanding. And he he goes the extra mile to let them know, "I, I really do, I've tried to understand your world. And then he says, but, but I have a different 
story to tell you. And, and I see the longing that's in your heart. Your longing is to know God. And that is a really, really good desire. And I'm here to tell you, I, I can help you. And so he shares from his heart. And when he shares, this is the last thing that stands out to me when I read the passage. It just shocks me. The scripture that he chooses to use. I don't know if you saw it. It's, it's not there. He doesn't quote a single Bible verse when he's talking to the Athenians. Why on earth would Paul not share the Bible? Right? And before you start to think that he's not a good Christian because he didn't share the Bible, remember, he's Paul and you're you. <laughs> Why would Paul not share the Bible with these people? The answer is they don't know the Bible, they have no idea. You know who they do know? Greek poets. They loved to read Greek poets. Their entire education, they would have memorized them. Their parents, their grandparents would have told them the writings of those that had come before them. They loved the writings of Greek poets. So you know who Paul quotes? Greek poets. In his speech, he quotes two different ancient pagan authors. And he uses the words of those pagan Greek poets to describe God. He uses those words to point them towards Jesus. Right? He doesn't say that, that those poets know everything. He doesn't say that, that their worldview is correct. In fact, he's saying the opposite, but he's using their language to say it. He spent time understanding who they are. He deeply cares for these people and he wants them to know that. Because what he recognizes is that those poets, those philosophers, us in this room, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, we are all trying to understand this story of being human. We're trying to describe that story as best as we can. All of our creative works, that's what it's about. How do we help people understand this story of humanity? How do we identify what is good and right and true and beautiful and noble in this world? And how do we articulate in a way that, that can transform this place? And everybody is trying to do that in their own way. But if they're not doing it with Jesus it's not the best story they could be telling. That's what, that's what our world needs to hear. Right? Our, our world, our, our neighbors, they're not our enemy. Right? We, we have an enemy that is spiritual and he's been defeated and, and everybody that's here is just hopefully a future brother and sister. And so how do we find the story that they're telling? How do we engage that story? Not run away from it, not fight against it, not retreat, not just go along with it. How do we engage it? 
We have to understand the language of the people that are around us in our culture. We have to know our culture. Right? We have to be able to articulate the story of God that is different from the story of this world. The story of God is that he created us. He created everything to reflect his glory, to know him. And he wanted to make us creative stewards of the gifts that he gave. And he wanted to see us create a thriving, wonderful, beautiful home that looked like heaven. And we screwed that up pretty bad. Yet he, he couldn't just give up. And so he entered our story as a human in Jesus. He became one of us. He identified with our isolation and our loneliness and our brokenness and our injustice and our anger and our greed and he experienced the effects of those things without ever giving in himself. He died at the hands of our injustice and took all of our wrong, our shame, our fear. He put it on himself and gave us his goodness. He died and conquered death so that we could then write a new story. A story that we could never write on our own. A story in which we're loved and we're known and we have purpose. A story in which we're commissioned to join him in writing a better story for our entire world. A world that, that is fair and just and peaceful and loving and people feel secure That is the story that he's invited us into. And it is such a better story than any of us know how to tell without him. But we're trying. And we can see our world trying. Right? When you watch film, when you look at those movies nominated for best picture, you see our best attempts to tell that story. And their stories filled with anger. And their stories filled with vengeance. And their stories filled with brokenness and loss and abuse. And somebody saying, please help. And your neighbor, your brother, your friend, your coworker your spouse, they have a choice to make about this Jesus guy. They have a choice to make about their story. But they may not know what the choice is unless you engage them. Right? If no one tells them a different story, how are they going to know it's possible? And how are you going to engage them if you don't know the Greek poets? Right, our Greek poets are Spielberg and Howard and Nolan and Cohen and Anderson, Del Toro, the people who make our stories. If we don't know their language, we don't know the language of the people we need to engage. 
right? Because a lot of folks that don't know Jesus, they don't know the Bible, they don't know church, they don't know what they don't know. But they do have a heart that longs for a better story. And they're in need of someone who can tell a better story. That's the mission that the Lord has given us. That every person would know there is a different story that is possible. We should be the very best storytellers in the world because we have the best story. That is what the church has been commissioned to do, to engage culture, to show culture a different way, not to hide from it, not to fight against it, not to go along with anything it says. How do we help people make a choice about Jesus that leads to a different world? And maybe you made that choice a long time ago, Maybe you haven't made that choice. If you're here and and you've not made a decision, what do I think about this Jesus guy? Where do I stand with him? Paul and I would say to you, it's, it's not hard for any one of us. God's not far from us. It takes reaching out and saying, I want a different story. If you made that choice a long time ago and, and you want to see others make that, but you think as, as you listen to this, I, I don't even know what to do. Try having a conversation that engages. Try having a conversation that, that in which you've sought to understand somebody else before. What's the story that they're trying to write? What's the answer that they're looking for? And, and how would that story be so much better with Jesus? And if that seems impossible, how do we examine the stories of our world how do we help write a different story, get some popcorn and come back next week? That's what we're going to do. Let's pray. Jesus, you're good. Thank you for being you. Thank you for loving us, for offering a different story. Or thank you for becoming one of us, for not just hanging out in, in your, your heavenly hideaway, but for coming into our culture to understand who we are, what we need, and being every bit of that. Thank you for being enough. Lord, I pray that that we would know that in our lives, that we would know you to be good and the God who is able to save, God who's able to write a different story, not just in our own lives, but in our entire world. Jesus, would you make this place, would you make this place a a place where your kingdom reigns? Would your kingdom come here like it is in heaven? We pray this in your name, amen.